Um, and you know, a lot of people say when they notice that huge distance between Putin and whoever it is that he's talking to at these meetings that we see on television, that he's uh, paranoid about um, COVID. I think that's too far of a distance for COVID. I think that's about the distance of a blast hidden in a uh, in a briefcase, and he's thinking back to Hitler's generals in the bunker in 1944, and wants to make sure that doesn't happen to him. I'm Ashley McFarlane, a nonprofit executive living in Duluth, Minnesota, and you are listening to the Vance Crow Podcast. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm glad you're here. Today, we're doing a special edition because I want to continue on with the multiple perspectives of what's going on between Russia and the Ukraine. And I've struggled to get a Russian speaker. In fact, if anybody out there knows a Russian speaker or maybe knows somebody that has a grandma or an aunt or an uncle that would want to talk with me, uh, know that I would be very, very open. And I have no opinion on this issue. I'm trying my best to say the best value that I can bring to this conversation is as many different perspectives as I can find. But I can tell you right now that is very, very difficult to do. There are very few people from the Russian side of the border that I can get a hold of that are willing to sit down and talk about their perspective. So I did the next best thing. I contacted my college professor, Dr. Will Priggy, who has been studying the uh, Cold War and the US and um, Eastern relations. He spent time in Moldova, he speaks Russian, um, even some Ukrainian, and I thought he would be the next best thing. And he did a great job of showing up and talking about what uh, Russian media was saying in the lead up to the war and uh, kind of what their, um, what he believes Putin's intentions are. So you are in for a very interesting interview. And if these kinds of interviews are things that you enjoy, know that there is a community called the Articulate Ventures Network, where we host different discussions, where we get together and practice getting better at public speaking, at thinking about uh, challenges, but also debating issues like this, where you can take any side that you want just to be able to explore and uh, try out ideas. We live in a world where we're kind of fed a certain set of ideas and it is really good to make sure you get out there, you stretch, you exercise, you try out different ways of thinking and maybe you arrive at the same conclusions you had before, but it's really good to know that you arrived at them rather than just having them received. So without further ado, we are gonna go hear an opinion from one of my good friends and former teacher, Dr. Will Priggy. Priggy. It's good to be here, Vance, how are you? <laughs> Man, it has been a, a wild uh, few days, uh, not just uh, personally, but all over the world. And I'm really excited to just jump in right here. So to begin with, what is the lay of the land right now with uh, the Russia and the Ukraine crisis as far as you know from your academic position? It is. Um, it is very unpredictable right now. And we could speculate about what the options might be in the uh, in the future, but we could never really know for sure, uh, because I think with this kind of uh, government and society and leadership, that it really comes down to the mind of a single individual. And uh, and only he knows um, what the what at least the future from his side holds, although clearly he thought he knew the future for all sides. Uh, and uh, and five, six, seven days into this, and I'm sure he's going to have to readjust his uh, his plans because things are clearly not going the way uh, he would have intended. 
So during the buildup, as uh, they were building up troops on on the border, what was he telling his people was was the reason that they needed to do this? What are they believing as as they go through the you know the fact that their country invaded another country? It really, uh, I suppose there would be um, two narratives that you would hear as he's trying to to prepare his people. Uh, one would be sort of the line that he would have given us that they're not down there to do anything, that these are just simply military exercises. Um, pay no attention to the 150,000 people on your border. Um, but I think the other thing is that he would need to lay the groundwork on is um, if if there were to be uh, a war, why that war would uh, be um, to kind of psychologically, I think, prepare the uh, the population and what the population actually believed, because they're aware of of that troop buildup like we all were. Um, but they would have thought, and I think uh, the Ukrainians were probably of the same opinion, the Ukrainians that I know, is that um, this is just Putin. And Putin is a negotiator. And so sometimes uh, in that old KGB style, if you really want to get the deal uh, that you want, you've got to take it right up to the edge. And so, yes, it looks scary, but that is Putin being Putin. And one thing I can know for sure is that there's not going to be an invasion because it would be catastrophic for uh, both sides. And I would say this was very much the opinion of the Ukrainians that I knew as well. It's not going to happen. And there is almost a disbelief, I think, coming from both sides uh, when it uh, when it ultimately did happen. But um, maybe to go further with um, um, how he would prepare his people um, is that I think the Russian perspective would be that uh, we're talking about the long arc of history here and that uh, and that what is historic Russian lands and historic Russian lands. First, they look at it by ethnicity. And so they would see this really as being Russia, but also Belarusia and Ukraine. And that these are all sort of um, fellow Slavic brothers. And, and, and so the natural unit is this sort of fraternal brotherhood of, of Slavs. And that uh, when you look, and again, I'm saying this from him, his perspective, not necessarily mine, uh, but when you look at, say, linguistically, there's not such a great difference between Belarusian and Russian. Uh, maybe there's more with Ukrainian and Russian, but um, they're, they're close. I don't know. I wouldn't say that they're mutually intelligible. Uh, Putin doesn't, uh, when he has met with Ukrainians, he would need a translator for that. But uh, but he would say it's it's pretty close, uh, and that we have a shared history, and that if you look at the origins of Russia, it's never been in Moscow. It's always been down in Kiev, and so the giant uh, statue that they have on the Dnieper there to um, uh, Vladimir the Great is uh, um, 
that is seen as uh, the origins of Russia, not just uh, Ukraine, and that he would be a uh, Russian founder, um, uh, not just somehow Ukrainian. And that what is this Ukrainian? And he would he's he's said this in the past that it's in a sense uh, an invention uh, of the post World War era. And so, uh, and of course, the Ukrainians would say, well, if you look at anything in Central and Eastern Europe, they're all products of um, this time after the First World War, either the uh, Civil War in Russia or the, uh, the, the peace treaties at, uh, at Paris in 1919. Uh, so, um, and then there's lots of other historic lands that we could add to that if we wanted to, such as uh, the Baltic states were all always part of the uh, of the Russian Empire as as well. And now they're a part of of NATO. And so he would say um, and he I think he plays on a certain uh, grievance and um, hurt feelings that the Russians had that 1991 was painful for them. And the only thing more painful than the collapse of the Soviet Union for Russians is the decade that followed. And the decade that followed was marked by sort of this um, cowboy capitalism, American advisors suggesting to the Russians as to how it is that they can restructure their economy and become wealthy and prosperous like us in the United States. You just have to be willing to endure a little pain, uh, this so-called shock therapy. And that if you go through this uh, shock therapy and you almost brutally um, privatize the lands uh, and the property within uh, from the Soviet Union, it's going to be hard, but we'll get through it and you'll be better as a result of that. And unfortunately, at the end of the 1990s, um, yeah, you have to crack eggs in order to make an omelet, but where's your omelet? And there was no omelet. And this is the tide and the sentiment that Putin came to power on. Um, and it, in many ways, uh, moved to rectify some of those issues of the, uh, of, of the past. Um, but he would say then that Russia was uh, in a... Um, very weak position in 1990 or 1991 and the western powers came in and they do this with uh, a smile uh, and some soothing words uh, but they were there basically he would say to um, um, imperialize us economically and uh, and we were uh, not in a position, we were desperate for loans from uh, the West uh, to say no. So we had to sign on to some um, pretty bad agreements. And that uh, just because we signed on to give away so many of our historic Russian lands because we're in a weak position, uh, he would say, I'm sort of a strong leader and I'm coming back and now it's time to renegotiate that bad deal. So that would be sort of that from the Russian perspective. You know, I'm so glad you brought it up because there's been very little explanation of what is going on in the, in the minds of the Russians. And for me, it's very uncomfortable when you start saying our adversaries are crazy people, right? They're mm -hmm. totally out of their mind. 
because yeah. I find one, it very rarely ever helps you to underestimate your your opponent by just saying they're irrational. That's right. And then two, like there are millions and millions of people on the other side of the border that you know the the Western news is telling me that they're protesting and that there are oligarchs that are saying that they don't like it. But I have to imagine that um, Putin maybe doesn't care about internal polling results for his. Um, you know, for his upcoming election, but he does need the support of at least some group of people in order to stay in yeah. power. So, so to me, being able to understand what the motivations are um, is really important here because we went from people being um, really outraged about all the things going on with COVID to taking, I think, all of that mm -hmm. energy and having like a firm belief that they know and understand everything that's going on in the Ukraine yeah. And so I think it's hard to figure out where do you find another perspective on this? Well, and I would really echo uh, what you said about um, uh, whether he's just simply crazy, because that is such a um, shortcut to uh, it's just such poor analysis, because, as you said, uh, it it doesn't really tell us anything. Uh, and so there's no understanding. And then just to assume that somebody is making all sorts of decisions and choices without having sort of uh, goals and ideas in mind as to what it is that they see and how it is that they see there. It's just intellectual laziness for sure. Um, and, uh, and, and, and I guess I want to put a slight caveat on that in that uh, we've probably now all become uh, armchair psychologists trying to uh, read the tea leaves as to what's going on. And I could imagine a situation where a person who is somewhat isolated, uh, so they don't have all of the information at hand, and maybe under uh, extraordinary pressure because of perhaps how things are going, um, if that doesn't affect you mentally and how it is that you um, make your choices. But at the, uh, at the core of this, um, Putin has uh, uh, broad support. And he has broad support because uh, he's run out uh, uh, his opponents jailed them um, and shut down opposition media. But um, he also has broad support because uh, people uh, feel the same way he does. And so that uh, so what he says uh, resonates with them. And I would say that that is is particularly true with the uh, with the older generation. Yeah, I have a friend uh, that was sending me media from China, which, you know, is, is an interesting thing. But I was trying to say, hey, where is there somebody that is kind of presenting what the Russians thought? And there was a woman on French TV um, uh, that saying, look, uh, I know the U.S. and the Western countries are trying to support the, you know, the, the Ukrainians while they're going through this. But you should be aware that just as Putin has um, gotten rid of or disappeared journalists, we also see this occurring in the Ukraine. This is not as full and robust of a democracy as it is being presented. And the, there's a real danger in oh, yeah. holding up the, the current leadership, which maybe has some, some dictatorial tendencies as well, because then you take the people that really were suffering, and she was saying it was in the, in the 2 million range, mm -hmm. um, that, that those people would be then 
left out by the community the, the entire world would kind of just leave them and and yeah. they really would only have putin to turn to yeah it's worth remembering that uh ukraine today is still remains um not quite as corrupt in the indexes that measure this as russia um but it's not far behind and so it uh it definitely has its issues um and and at least ostensibly that's one of the reasons why it is that they uh haven't been able to join nato at this point is that that issue of of corruption hasn't been uh fully resolved yet and and i don't know to the degree that Zelensky has been successful i think there's a lot of uh, hope and optimism that he would be be able to uh, curb some of that corruption, but it still continues. And I think it's probably one of these deep-seated things that it's very difficult to, um, to, to remove. And I mean, we think about maybe our own country too, how, how difficult it is to cope with uh, uh, corruption within our own system. And so, but it's, again, it's not to the degree that uh, Ukraine and Russia is. I studied um, in graduate school, one of my large uh, projects was on how much does press freedom impact uh, corruption? And uh, it's an interesting thing because you could find out if you had low levels of press freedom, then you almost automatically had high levels of uh, corruption. But mm -hmm. just because you start opening up to a free press doesn't bring the corruption down. In fact, yeah. it was really very difficult to find any circumstances at all where if corruption is endemic in the culture that they yeah. ever get rid of it unless there's some giant revolution that, that changes something is very very rare and, and this goes throughout asia central um central america um i'm sure in europe it's just once it's in there yeah. getting it out is nearly impossible because those people then that benefit from that are also in a position to perpetuate the system and so yeah it's that's that's absolutely true so what is the uh, as as a historian that was you know reading a lot about the Cold War right your experience of the world was I saw this happen as a kid and now I'm going to go study it deeply but it appears as though history is happening right in front of our faces yeah. so what does somebody like you do to watch this and make sure you're tracking it so you get it right somewhere down the line yeah and uh, um, you know and it's it's definitely something that I've I've thought about because I've had research assistants and um, conversational tutors from uh, Russia, many people. Um, and, uh, and, and, and it's weird because I sort of have separated them from the history that is conceivably going on in their uh, own country in that, um, I thought, okay, uh, as I work with these people, I don't want to get into that old Cold War tit for tat, uh, you know, uh, we have this, you don't, and, and this kind of thing. Uh, so knowing that it was always kind of a sensitive issue, um, I tended to uh, avoid it. Um, and, and, and then as the troops began to gather on the border, um, I didn't even ask, what are your thoughts on Putin? Because I thought, 
this stuff is so raw right now from from all sides uh, that uh, that I didn't cross it. And I think about how many, in a sense, great primary sources uh, that I haven't fully tapped into that um, that you can get a very interesting perspective from. Uh, and uh, and it's something that I may just come back to uh, maybe as things settle just a little bit uh, to kind of see what is that uh, that perspective. And unfortunately, I I even have stopped using them for right now uh, to do my help me with my research because I just I personally can't justify sending money over there right now, uh, and so I've I've kind of turned to Ukrainians and so I'm kind of getting some of this Ukrainian perspective, uh, and there I'm I'm more willing to talk uh, openly about it at least as of the uh, the past three or four weeks here, but. Yeah, it's fascinating to think about primary sources, right? Like um, when uh, when the Ukraine uh, was actually invaded, when it, after everything had gone, I was like, I'm going to go uh, read or watch Putin's press conference that he's explaining yeah. all this stuff. And it took me like more than 45 minutes to find it because at this point, once they invaded, Facebook took Russia Today off. So all of the translations yeah. that were there were gone. You yeah. couldn't just go to the Kremlin's uh, website because that had been shut down. I'm not sure if it was they shut it down or the US and you yeah. start looking around and you start saying, I, I remember when everybody was telling us that the internet would bring us together during time. Yeah. And now I feel like it's a, a blind quadrant. It's very difficult to know what's going on on the Eastern part of the oh, world. Oh, I know. And you know, and some of this is again, it's almost, I find myself self-selecting. So I've often used sort of, um, Channel One, uh, one of these Russian state uh, medias as a, you know, just it was always good practice for me to sit and uh, listen to the news and uh, and you kind of get their perspective uh, and you work on your language at the same time. Um, but some of that stuff, it became difficult for me to listen to uh, because it was so hostile to America. And, uh, and, 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 and so often not true. Um, like when they, um, I remember an instance when the Screeples, they are this, uh, father, daughter, uh, former spy, but went to hide out in, uh, uh, Britain. And then they, there was this, um, uh, uh, sort of highly intensive poison that was sort of placed on doorknobs and things and and then how homeless people were dying from this because they had accidentally got into that and how it was that the Russian news was making light of that and kind of making jokes and that they're making fun of their last name which means like fiddle in Russian and making puns off of that and it, and it just became very hard for me to sit and, and to listen to this but I, I feel like with all this, I need to force myself to because it is history happening before our eyes and I'm missing uh, portions of it when I'm not going right to the source to hearing what that other side is. So when you think about the, the buildup to a war, typically my understanding is you either as a as a regular citizen, you either need to feel like I am threatened and therefore we're going to go out or I am horribly aggrieved and we're going to yeah. go out. Or we're protecting somebody over there and that yep. you know, we're we're righteous. Yep. It seems to me that there's kind of a we're under threat, so we need to help ourselves. And, oh, we're also going to help those people. 
Is yeah. That your understanding of what the Russians kind of think going into this? Yeah. And I think um, to, to look at this a little bit, um, that uh, there are things that are very, very popular with the Russian people. And it doesn't have to be ginned up at all. It's just felt that way. Um, so with the annexation of, of Crimea, uh, they were extraordinarily sympathetic to that um, because they would say, well, 58% of that region is ethnically Russian. And then you kind of link it back to we were on our knees in the 1990s when they extracted from us all of these concessions that sort of that old fool Yeltsin, when a drunken Yeltsin went ahead and signed uh, so that the West could take advantage of us. They saw this as really sort of correcting uh, wrongs from the past. And, and these are very popular wars. And even with the decision, uh, as much as you can tell anything about um, public opinion in a uh, uh, authoritarian society, that even uh, the decision for Luhansk and Donetsk to become independent um, was uh, popular with the Russian people because they thought, well, ethically, they are uh, um, close to majority or majority Russian speakers in that area. So why is it that they are uh, in Ukraine? So that made uh, real sense, I think, to the Russian people. And um, these were these were real um, um, uh, ratings boosts for Putin. And even I think authoritarians need to monitor uh, what their what their popular ratings are. And Putin was really at the highest right in 2014, uh, just after the annexation of Crimea. That's when he was riding the highest. And then I think a lot of these sanctions and the price of oil plummeting and things like that dropped his uh, approval rating sort of into the doldrums, maybe into the 60s or something. Um, and I'm not sure if this was part of his calculus is to give myself a ratings boost by one of these quick, easy wars that are going to uh, um, uh, rectify the injustices of the, the past. But um, and I can go into a lot more detail, if you like, as to maybe what his reasoning was for even placing the 150,000 troops down there. Oh, means. Yeah, of course. Um, and I think uh, um, he probably had lots going on in his mind. One would be a ratings boost. And I think he had no concept that it would be uh, sort of the struggle that it's become. Um, but I, I think that um, you, it, it's not sort of the final move by a chess grandmaster, as we might imagine. And we kind of imagine that with Hitler as well, that I do this and then I do this and I methodically, I've got this all charted out and everybody just sort of haplessly falls into my web. Um, but I think, and this would be true of Hitler back in the uh, late 1930s as well, is that there's a little bit of flying by the seat of your pants and that uh, you don't perfectly know what's going to happen. 
and that the option that you ultimately chose is not the option uh, that you would have wanted, but it seems like perhaps it's the only option that was left to you. And so uh, if I could imagine uh, Putin, um, he's, he's better, I think, at machinations behind the scenes rather than brutal frontal assault warfare. This is not his uh, cup of tea. And so, uh, and the problem begins, I think, back with 2014. And, and again, if we want to look at this from his perspective, he would say that the 2014 uh, uh, Maidan uh, protests um, uh, that eventually uh, led to the expelling of, of his person um, was illegitimate. Another one of these color revolutions. Say his person, you mean the, the president that kind of the West views as- Yukashenko, yes. Yukashenko. Yeah. And so- um, and so Yanukovych, I'm sorry, uh, but um, um, the um, the the color revolutions, he hates those uh, because first off, he imagines that they are um, not true um, opposition to Russia, but they are somehow um, machinations on the side of the West and that uh, there they are through all of their soft power and NGOs and the rest embedded in these countries, sort of pitting one side against the other where they should have been just happy uh, being uh, together with us, closely aligned with, uh, with uh, Russia. And so then, and they're pitting against uh, forcing Ukraine into these false choices. Uh, do you want to ally yourself with your sort of um, uh, natural side, which would be Russia, or do you want to uh, join NATO and the uh, European Union? And he would think that, of course, it's true that uh, uh, that Ukraine would want to join uh, the uh, free trade union with uh, with Russia. Um, and that uh, if there are people that are saying we want to go into NATO, this idea was put into their head by the West. And so then when this thing turns into a full on uh, revolution, he again doesn't see that as the popular sentiment of the people. That is now the, the West doing what they do. So we need to do what we need to do and bring them back into the fold. And they got away from us. The West sort of won at that moment. Um, and then I think he's become increasingly frustrated since 2014 uh, because Ukraine has continued to drift uh, closer and closer to the uh, to the West, and that it hasn't been simply um, uh, it, it's no longer a puppet of of Russia, and that uh, I think worst of all in Putin's position in his opinion is that they were buying javelins and stinger missiles and drones hand over fist, uh, so that uh, they from the Ukrainian perspective could protect themselves. But then Putin sees this as Western encirclement. And that I think his calculus was that um, if we don't stop this soon, I'll never be able to stop this um, because they're becoming militarily stronger and stronger. 
But again, he never wanted the military option. He never wanted uh, a full out military confrontation with Ukraine. Instead, what he wanted to do was have uh, Luhansk and uh, Donetsk come uh, back into Ukraine, become re- sort of return to the Ukrainian fold with um, special status that it has greater autonomy to sort of choose its own special path. And this would have required a full change to the Ukrainian constitution. And those in the, particularly in the West of Ukraine, uh, were not going to have any of that. Uh, They were not about to change their constitution, which has more centralized authority to make it more decentralized uh, and carve out exceptions for certain states, because then you could see that beginning to spin over to uh, other regions of Ukraine where they get sort of special status. And that this then, so the fear was is that uh, Ukraine or um, Russia could use the, the, that sort of divisions within the Ukrainian state itself to sort of play favorites with some states and pit them against others, but always with the goal of taking authority from the center and sort of moving it to these individual regions and in decentralizing Ukraine, it would be then easier to sort of manipulate uh, uh, Ukraine and to to sort of bring it back into the fold. And the fact that Donetsk and Luhansk were never able in these four years, five years, uh, to get this sort of special status, and this is, I think, part of the Minsk Accord as well, continually frustrated Putin because it continued to be a centralized state and that is now becoming militarily more self-sufficient, economically more prosperous, maybe as a alternative model to Putinism that others might see, all of these would be sort of threats to him. So this declaration of Donetsk and Luhansk as their own independent state was almost... um, uh, the the end of Plan A for Putin, and so in that with that you can really tell that the die had been cast because oh, now that option it. of decentralizing Ukraine was off the table. I did not. So that is a a whole new thing that I did not realize that that them declaring independence was like oh okay they've yeah. gone past the line they're not going to be reintegrated in this way that they had hoped. Yeah. So, Ah, this because from Putin's perspective, now you've lost. It would be so much better to have them in Ukraine and controlling sort of Ukraine within. And if you declare them independent, now all of a sudden they weren't wouldn't be a part of Ukraine. So you no longer have that option of controlling Ukraine from within. So there's only one other way that you can do it. And it's a less good option is the front on uh, military option. So it's an interesting way that it's played out is that um, so much gas is needed by the rest of Europe. Ironic. (laughs) You know, in particular, I was reading. That's what they do, right? (laughs) Germany had shut down a bunch of their nuclear reactors um, because they'd had a whole bunch of pressure. There's like a a green movement there that says, hey, we want to go to wind and solar, but you have to have mass production of oil to be able to create electricity and the heat. And so it looks to me like the biggest players in Europe, 
they don't have an interest in uh, in going in lest they be cut off from oil because that, that would literally uh, throw chaos into Europe. Like we could be, I think it'd be difficult to even imagine. Yeah, yeah, and I think well, we see evidence of that um, with, of course, Germany being the weakest link in all of that. And um, I forget what the situation was. Maybe that uh, Kiev was requesting a hundred thousand helmets, which is not exactly heavy ordnance, from uh, Germany. And Germany went and countered with, we can give you 5,000 helmets and we can't even go into Ukraine to give them to us. If you want to send somebody to the border, we can drop them off uh, at the border with Poland or whatever. <laughs> and, uh, and and I think, I can't remember if it was with that instance or another one, but uh, the mayor of uh, Kiev, which is kind of a colorful guy, uh, said he refused the offer and said, uh, what else do you want to send us pillows? <laughs> and so, uh, and so that really sort of revealed uh, the weakness of Germany in particular. Italy is another big importer of this uh, gas and natural gas, but uh, boy, Germany in, in particular. But it's interesting to see how that's kind of played out because as this thing has really devolved, I think we've seen at some point um, Germany sort of coming to the recognition that uh, this is now beyond the pale. Uh, there's no salvaging this um, relationship anymore. I hope that Putin doesn't turn off the uh, spigot on the uh, gas flow to Germany, but I think they also understand that that could be a very real possibility and that somehow they seem to be okay with that now because they're sending over uh, I forget how many it was, maybe a, um, uh, a couple thousand, I don't know, 100,000 uh, uh, um, anti-tank uh, uh, handheld rocket launchers and things like that. Uh, so um, uh, it was swift. So they, they've come to the recognition that uh, this, this is not going to work. And, and what I didn't realize is that those nuclear reactors that were sort of shut down after Fukushima, have not totally been dismantled and so that they are firing those uh at least some of those back up again uh to sort of close the uh close the gap and so but there's not enough closing that that gap is way too big uh and and, and, and so maybe to be sympathetic a little bit to the germans they're doing all of this with the understanding that um uh, we could be really harmed economically by what Russia can do to us by how dependent we are on this oil and, and that, particularly natural gas. It's hard to imagine like a full scale war um, that, that would bleed outside of, of Ukraine. Is that just me being naive here or is, is, it, um, is that really kind of unthinkable? Oh, it could definitely go beyond Ukraine. Uh, would it go on to um, um, NATO countries? I think that's maybe the bigger question. But there are three countries that are sort of what I might say uh, uh, not under the umbrella, which is Moldova, where I was uh, earlier this fall, uh, Ukraine and Georgia. 
And the one thing that all three of those countries have in common with each other is they have this disputed, they each have a disputed territory and what we also call a frozen conflict uh, within their territory where you have maybe a, uh, a sizable number, maybe even a majority in these regions of Russian speakers, and that they see themselves as sort of separate and different from kind of the, uh, the, the mother country um, for all sorts of reasons that I could give, but that, uh, but that this, um, Putin would see this as his opportunity to, in a sense, settle those frozen conflicts, to incorporate all of those people into Russia. And what I was originally imagining is there is something known as sort of this Novaya Russia project, new Russian project. And these are all the lands at the south of Ukraine, which are, you know, historically Russian. Uh, they uh, uh, Russian lands brought in under Catherine the Great. Uh, they have, I wouldn't say a majority of Russian speakers, but they have a sizable population of Russians. And in some areas like uh, Luhansk, uh, Donetsk, and uh, uh, certainly Crimea, uh, you're getting close to a majority and a majority in Crimea. Um, and that uh, he, his hope was to sort of bring those people into the fold. And at the same time that Crimea happened, uh, there was a push to get those people sort of through popular uh, uprising to uh, throw off the shackles of Ukraine and join Russia in this sort of Novaya Russia project. And it never really took off um, because and it's interesting, just because somebody is a Russian speaker doesn't automatically mean that they want to live under an authoritarian kleptocrat. And so uh, it's it's funny how that works, but sometimes that's so. <laughs> and so uh, so that really didn't take off. But uh, with that sort of Novaya Russia vision, uh, he was imagined sort of solving at least the Ukrainian and Moldovan um, um, frozen conflict. And then if we wanted to take this, oh, go ahead. Matt. Well, I no, I keep going. I, I didn't know you had more to go. Yeah. Now, and I'll take just my sort of little country of Moldova, which is just to the uh, sandwiched in between Ukraine and Romania. Um, these countries are can be quite complex ethnically. And they have another population to the south, the Gagauzi, uh, and they are Turkish Christians that migrated to the south of Moldova from Bulgaria. And so they are Turkish, but I had to ask when I, but they all speak uh, Russian and they are all sort of pro-Putin and pro-Russia. And I had to ask when I was there because Erdogan had actually visited the city of Kamarat. Well, uh, um, and I asked if there were ever a war between Turkey and Russia, who would they go for? Uh, and, and they said they would go for Russia, not Turkey, even though they are ethnically Turkish. So that kind of becomes complex. But let me just throw even one more kind of uh, fly into the ointment is that during sort of the Soviet period, a lot of Soviet uh, leaders were Ukrainian, actually Brezhnev and Khrushchev and others. And the Ukrainians had some benefits. They got Crimea uh, and they got uh, quite a bit of uh, Moldovan territory where Romanian speakers were. And this uh, is something that sort of has stuck in the craw of Moldovans. And so to think of this area as homogeneously pro-Putin 
Putin or Poro, uh, anti-Putin, it becomes very difficult. So then uh, the EU sort of has a project there where we're going to throw lots of money at you guys, uh, Ukraine, Moldova, and Romania. If you forget about these little border disputes down sort of where you three all meet on the Danube. Uh, and that was sort of the Band-Aid solution that the EU came up with. And then, of course, in comes uh, Putin sort of stirring the pot as he does. Uh, and so then the final scenario that I imagined in my uh, in this scenario is now let's think about the next democratic election in Moldova. Currently, you know, they have a lot of pro-Russian, pro-EU sentiment in Moldova. And they happen for the first time to have a pro-EU uh, uh, president and pro-EU parliament. But what if now in the next election that came up, now all of a sudden on the table was, um, um, we're going to, do you want Putin's plan the Russian plan of bringing all those lost Moldovan territories taken by Ukraine during the 1940s and 50s, do you want to get on with Putin's plan of bringing that back into Moldova? Or do you want to go with sort of the mamby-pamby EU option where forget about all those past border disputes, just play nice and things will all be better. And just imagine how that would play with the uh, population in Moldova. And the first to go for the exit would definitely be the Gagauzi, just past the Transnistrians, which are sort of a th that disputed territory, which is a thin strip along the eastern edge of Moldova. And that these sort of entities, which were created in 1991 and 92, you could imagine how easily those things could fall apart, even from just within. It's uh, when you think of from the American perspective, we've always lived in the United States. It's very clear there's Canadians to the north, there's Mexicans to the south. That it it was uh, it wasn't until I went to diplomacy school that I even realized there was a time before countries, and like mm -hmm. like this seems like a silly thing to say, like oh of course there was times where we didn't have countries, but it wasn't until like this 1650 or so when you got the Treaty of Westphalia where yep. they. It, Ah, this is what it is to be a country. You have borders. That's right. Established borders and you are here, there, rights and responsibilities. That's right. Which is one of those things that makes me like um, take pause when I hear about these border disputes or who views themselves as Russian or Ukrainian, because it's very easy for me to be like, oh, this is a black and white issue and it's very clear. Mm -hmm. But where you sit um, on, a, on a border probably determines a lot about where you stand on that issue. Yeah, and it's not as cut and dry as as uh, anybody that's pushing a narrative, whether it's Rush, Eastern or yeah. Western. Everybody's got a view on this. Yeah. And and maybe to take that uh, Westphalian example up, I mean, Westphalia really determines a lot of things for Western Europe, but it says nothing about uh, Eastern Europe or uh, Eurasia or anything like that. Um, and so then one could imagine that this sort of idea of a nation state uh, for those areas is even more modern, such as uh, the Paris Peace Conferences in 1919, or even really uh, 1991. 
And I see a lot of parallels between 1919 and 1991 um, because it's in those years. Those are the treaties or not treaties, but uh, those are the years in which you sort of had something before and now you're creating something new. And uh, and how well is that done? How well can it be done? And oftentimes it's on these uh, in a situation where um, uh, th there are winners and losers and the losers uh, are losers oftentimes because they are in a weak position. And then if we take that 1919 analogy up to 1938, if the, the country in question is Germany, it was weak in 1919, but it took about 20 years for it to strengthen itself. And then when it's in a position to perhaps do something, um, then all of a sudden, sort of that aggrieved party says, we got a bad deal at the original negotiation, and it's time to renegotiate that. And we're not going to ask you for your opinion on that. We're just going to simply do it. Uh, and if you don't like it, try to stop us. And so now kind of think about that with the Soviet Union as well. Uh, 1991, sort of the heels of losing your empire, losing that sort of struggle, uh, and then having to negotiate from a position of weakness and that in a sense, uh, Putin then is, uh, he had the plan at least of renegotiating that, uh, that bad deal. And it's, so it, this has real echoes, I think, of October 1938 and uh, the Sudeten Germans living in uh, Czechoslovakia and, and uh, Hitler in a sense wanting to be the gatherer of the, um, of the uh, German people. And then, then what is interesting is, and I think almost maybe more about Moldova than uh, Ukraine, but how that then created this chain reaction, which led to, in a sense, the Czechoslovakian experiment imploding, and then only into this vacuum sort of sweeps uh, Hitler. But six months after uh, the Munich conference, does Hitler go into Prague? But in many ways, we can't say whether this was something that he was planning all along or that he was just simply taking advantage of this implosion which he began the process but maybe had no intention of that going all the way to that but just simply taking advantage of that uh and i think that's part of what putin wants to do is perhaps destabilize uh ukraine as as the next best option or at least his original plan yeah i, I only vaguely remember the if the if it was the paris um treaty where they decided hey there's been this thing where where people have signed treaties with one another, but they haven't told anybody else about it. <laughs> um, I always thought like, why why would you ever go tell your treaties to other people? This doesn't make any sense. And this is why you have this very ornate ceremony of I sign it with a pen, and then I actually have to give you that pen because you have to have like certification of a of a of an object from that. But you look at a situation like we're in right now, <clears throat> and you say, mm -hmm. what happens if there are agreements? from you know whether it's in the west which like nato is very clear you know we've made the, all the u.s agreements with europe is like attack one attack them all 
there's a lot of scenarios where you've made agreements with other countries. Maybe you're in the East or, or something where this kicks off a level of um, other people's involvement where once it's open, you know, the fire can spread in many ways because you can't yeah. control all the things that are happening. Well, the thing I guess that worries me the most is that um, Putin really doesn't have many limits on him right now. Who's going to stop him either from his inner circle? Um, and, you know, a lot of people say when they notice that huge distance between Putin and whoever it is that he's talking to at these meetings that we see on television, that he's uh, paranoid about um COVID. I think that's too far of a distance for COVID. I think that's about the distance of a blast hidden in a uh, in a briefcase. And he's thinking back to Hitler's generals in the bunker in 1944 and wants to make sure that doesn't happen to him. But he has very little and he sort of knows because uh, I think uh, Biden has made it very clear. We're not coming in to Ukraine and having Americans fighting against Russians because of the possibility of uh, a third world war, nuclear powers. But it then is going to challenge the world that if he has no limits and we've, in a sense, done everything short of going face to face with him that we can do. And that as things go very poorly for him, he begins to go after uh, no holds bar against civilians as well as uh, military targets. Uh, and as this gets really bloody uh, on the ground, that um, to what degree will we be able to sit and just simply watch it happen? And, uh, and, and that, that's where it could get really dangerous. So you had brought up the, uh, you know, his fears of assassination, which if you look at Twitter, I mean, there are people out there saying they're ready to go assassinate him themselves. To me, assassination in this scenario is a huge black box. That's saying like, mm -hmm. well, you know, we've got this person that we can't control right now, but whoever would come and take the reins in the, in the scenario after that, yeah. they do something right away. It just seems like Man, there are all there are millions of ways where this can spin out of control. Yeah. And it's it's a gamble right now that I personally would take. <laughs> if somebody could get them, they by all means should. But um, but yeah, it's uh you've you've got to wonder who is it that would take uh his his position. But and he's part of this larger system in which he is sort of uh, the chairman of the board, uh, but everybody that sits on the board is a beneficiary of this kleptocracy. So they're not just going to say, now we want to follow the American path and here we're gonna do our constitution and everything is going to be uh, clean and tidy. Like you said, once corruption is embedded in, uh, it's it's like getting mold out of your basement. Uh, it's it's all but impossible. Uh, and so that's that's tricky. I this that reminds me of this thing called um, it, there's a YouTube video called rules for rule uh, rules for rulers. And it's uh -huh. off this book called the dictator's handbook. And mm -hmm. it's a fascinating read because it shows how does somebody amass power? And then why yeah. are there people around them that you can give them power? Like you give them, yeah. you know, gold or you give them soldiers and there's kind of an exchange there. But to the American mind, this is not something we've had to really grapple with. And so it's a yeah. very good, good exercise to think about one per, you know, Putin's not out there driving the tanks. He's not out there flying the planes, right? People yeah. are listening to him. 
It's yeah. very interesting to to think about this. As we finish up, because I know you got to go, I'm really appreciative of you uh, making this work so we could get uh -huh. this so fast. But before you go, if somebody wanted to do the best that they could to listen to what the Russians are hearing or listen to what the Ukrainians are hearing, any ideas on on how a completely English-speaking person would, would go about that? Oh, to, to get their perspective. Um, I would say just go to the source, if it's still there, and run it through Google Translate. I mean, I don't speak Ukrainian, but I follow the government's feed uh, every night uh, to see just everything that's going on. And in fact, you there's an option, as you're say in that particular feed, do you want in Ukrainian or English? And you just click on it, and it'll automatically translate barriers. If you want to get out there and see what they're saying, it's all right there. Well, that's, uh, that is great, and I will definitely do that. So Dr. Will Priggy, thank you so much for coming on today. I really appreciate you taking the time. It's my pleasure, Vance. Good to see you again. Good to see you. Bye-bye. <laughs>